What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of storytelling, investments, and writing. First, we'll speak with Randy Evanson about teaching children through storytelling. After that, we'll talk with financial planner Greg Merced about how to help our kids learn about saving and investing money. Our last guest will be Brianna Shields, and we'll talk about her journey to becoming an author. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with the poem The Duck and the Kangaroo by Edward Lear, and we'll hear from some fifth grade students from Cherry Hill Elementary School. But first, let's take a step into my world. In past generations, civics was a significant part of the core curriculum. Today, this topic has been changed and oftentimes deleted, so much so that educators and scholars are concerned about its loss. Civics is the study of the duties and rights of citizenship. In our democracy, these duties and rights are central to keeping our country running successfully. Recent statistics have shown that voter participation has dropped by about 4% in the past five years. Many interpret these statistics as telling a story of the loss of civics knowledge and commitment in our society. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was also concerned by this decline, and she wanted to do something about it. So she founded an online gaming community called iCivics. This resource provides engaging games and other resources to help children learn some important civics concepts. For example, in one game, you set up a law firm where you're helping clients defend the rights offered to Americans through the constitutional amendments. As clients come in, you have to decide what rights they have and if you can defend that right. So when a client comes in saying that after they got a parking ticket, a judge sentences them to 50 years in prison, you can decide that they have a right to not have that punishment, according to Amendment 8, which protects us from cruel and unusual punishment. Clients come in fast and furious, and it's up to you to decide if they have a right, assign them to a lawyer who can help them, and then defend them at trial. As you make successful decisions, you get points, and you can use those points to hire new lawyers and to decorate your office. Even as an adult, I had lots of fun playing this game, and I learned a great deal about our constitutional rights. Other games include Newsfeed Defenders, which has you on the lookout for fake news, Immigration Nation, which has you navigate a path to citizenship, and Executive Command, which sees if you know what the president's job is. All the games are free and easy to play. So here at Rachel's World, we would heartily recommend iCivics to you and to your kids if you want to build some of your all-important democratic literacies. Rachel's World. There is a reason why fables are so prevalent in children's literature. Storytelling is a fundamental part of learning how to communicate, and stories can be invaluable in teaching lessons. We're in studio today with storyteller Randy Evanson. Welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. 
I just am, it's always a joy to speak with you because you have such vast experience. Um, and one of your foundational experiences is you were a teacher yes. and you worked in the classroom. But now you're a storyteller and you do all of that. Well, I guess you were still a storyteller when you were in the classroom. Uh-huh. But but now, right. <laughs> now you've kind of transitioned to be more more full time of a storyteller. So let's explore a little bit today the the intersection between those two things, between storytelling and teaching. So where do you see them crossing over? Where does storytelling and teaching come together? Well, they come together in very many important ways. First of all, I think storytelling identifies who you are. And I think there are a lot of young people, well, uh, you know, middle age or middle school high school and elementary kids who are struggling to find out who they are. And if they can tell stories, that, that is the first thing that is going to help them develop a, a honest, good self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I, you have to have a vehicle to do it, so I'd almost always use writing. Every day I would tell a story to the students that I worked with and then ask them, have you had a similar experience? Have you, I may tell a story about what a time I got in trouble and then I'd ask them, have you ever been in trouble? And of course they all have been and, and they use, and it gives them a spark in their mind about a story that an experience they've had. Then I'd send them back to write on that. So there's your first thing to do. It, it, it is an integral part of curriculum. But then when those students can begin to write about it and go home and discuss it with their parents, that story grows. And not only does it help them academically, but it helps their, their self-esteem. If I ever, ever had a moment where things got a little out of control in the classroom, all you had to do is begin to tell a story as well. And you have the kids in the palm of your hands, even if it's just a two- or three-minute story. So there's just a lot of ways to use a story in the classroom. That connection that you make between self-esteem and identity, and particularly personal stories between self-esteem and identity, is really intriguing to me because I think you're so right. I mean, I, I think that that is one of the ways that we identify ourselves and one of the ways that we connect with other human beings around those types of things. And I think sometimes we forget that school is an important place that we develop those identities. So how do you think stories do that, particularly for children? How do you think they kind of ground them in a very particular identity and help them to build their self-esteem, particularly as they're growing and developing as young people? How have you seen that work? Well, they take an experience that's happened to them, and then they have to process that through their mind. So they're thinking about, oh, what was happening? What was I thinking? What, how was that in relationship with other people in my family if they were in the stories? And it helps them identify, I am, this is the kind of person I am because this is the way I behaved. And then when they hear a story from their great-grandmother, and it's a similar kind of thing, they think, whoa, I can relate to one of my relatives, and that gives them that gives them even a more sure foundation in their self esteem. The more family stories that we can tell, and the more stories you can tell about the children who are even listening, it just helps them know who they are. 
That's and, critical. I don't know. That's totally critical. Yeah. Well, particularly today, because I think sometimes when we talk about um, social media and all of the technology that surrounds us, we can lose our identities fairly quickly, right? When we talk about bullying and other types of well, things, and that adds to that. Yeah, we have all seen that social me- social media is not the real picture. True, we can t- <laughs> so true. But you take a story and you add all the details, you have the real picture of what was happening and the kind of person that you are or the person your ancestors were. And you relate to that. And it just helps you find yourself. And you can do that early. And often, right? Yes, I and mean, often. You know, because I know thinking about on, on my history, you know, there's certain family stories that have been told about my family that I connected to at certain times in my life. And then at other times in my life, I connected more strongly to other stories or other bits of that story. So it's a very kind of recursive process in that way, I think, where it's not just one thing all the time, but things have different meaning as we grow and develop. Exactly. And also not just family stories, but ethnic stories, cultural stories, stories about our religion. Those are things that we are as well. And so it's not just family, but all of that plays a part in helping us become a strong adult eventually. Well, there's another piece of this that I think about, too, is when you talk about family stories and cultural stories and religion stories, all of those are very highly charged emotional issues and emotional for all of us, right? And for me, that's one of the things that story does really well is convey emotion, right? Because even if you're not expressing the emotion in the story, there is a sense of emotion through the action and the plot and the the context of the story. And connecting with that emotion just makes it a deeper experience um, than it would be if we were just saying, oh, I was sad, right? That doesn't doesn't really mean anything. But if I tell a story about when I was sad, that adds some depth to it. So even if you're telling a story about yourself, you connect more to yourself. And if, if it were an ancestor, the same thing. But, but it just helps identify I am. I am a person. I, and this is the way I behave. I know that I will react this way in situations. And, and maybe I need to change some of that. And that can help you identify that. But maybe you say, this is a strength I found in myself. And you begin to work on that as well. You know, I think there would be some people out there that would say, oh, you know, these kind of personal anecdotes, these personal stories, family stories really don't have a place in the classroom. But when you describe it like that, that it helps us identify our strengths and it also helps us to identify our weaknesses, I think it changes a perspective that one of the things we want to do through education is to help our students identify their strengths and weaknesses. And one of the ways to get at that and to help them articulate that is through story. Well, we want them to come out of of our public school system being a well-grounded person, not just highly academic. We need to understand about the direction we're heading in life and and what we have and can do to contribute to to the society. 
Yeah. And that, I mean, there's lots of scholars out there in psychology and they call that things like grit, you know, and, yes. and those those types of, I mean, you know, so we, we rock out those words, right? right. And those types of things. But it's so true, right? And that's where, that's where we learn that kind of resilience. That's right. where we learn that kind of sense of being able to engage with ourselves and engage with those around us at a, at a, a more fundamental level. Right. So when you as a teacher do this in your classroom, I presume that that's a major outcome you're expecting is these kind of social and emotional. But how does this also help like our reading literacies and our vocabulary literacies and all of these types of things? Are there ways that these kind of stories can can help us with some of those other foundational literacies? Of course, it is a very strong uh, language art skill. As I tell a story... It's beyond a student's reading ability, so they hear vocabulary that they wouldn't be able to read. And typically they can use contextual clues to figure it out. All, everything that happens in, in language arts can happen in a story, and it's just another vehicle to strengthen them as they learn to be better readers. It gets them excited about about language and language arts and reading is language. Our very first language is oral language. Sometimes we think, oh, we're learning to write. But if we don't have a strong oral language background, the other doesn't come as easily as well. So the, the more you can strengthen oral language, the better off that student's going to be. I, I just ne- think we need to underscore that statement, yeah. right? We need it bold and, and huge font and glowing. I know not everyone <laughs> agrees, but that is no, a strong feeling No, for me. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree with you because, you know, and the reality to me is that oral language and written language are very different, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And, and one of the things I love about oral language, which is one of the aspects of storytelling, is that oral language has dialect and tonality Mm -hmm. um, and rhythm um, in a way that written language tries to capture, but doesn't always truly capture, right? Exactly. So even as you speak, I can hear the tonality in your voice that, you know, identifies you from a location (laughs) and a place and an origin, right? Yes. And and also from, you know, a background and experience. And I think that that's so wonderful to capture those kinds of nuances of of this identity of who we are in a way that that written language doesn't always quite capture. Well, and and often written written language is also a so controlled vocabulary for them that they're not getting the the marvelous vocabulary that's out yeah. there to yeah. to strengthen their imagination and their and and their writing they're just it's it's a challenge yeah. and i'm sad when i hear schools that say oh we just don't have time for that <laughs> i think why do you not have time? Well, get rid of the stu- some of the other stuff that you shouldn't be doing and make exactly. time for the stuff that actually works. Right. Because, I mean, there's some really great studies that show these types of things yes. actually do work. And, and I think right. that, that to me is you're spending a lot of time on stuff that doesn't work. So let's spend time on but stuff that does. We put, we put the arts on the yeah. back burner a lot of times. We certainly do. We certainly bad. do. And that is such an important kind of wonderful statement to sum up this whole discussion, this fact of the arts and these types of things are 
fabulous for literacy to help us identify ourselves. And we just need to strengthen that in our schools, particularly. Thank you so much, Randy, for this wonderful conversation today. Thank you very much. Randy Evanson is an amazing storyteller and teacher. Next, it's story time with the poem, The Duck and the Kangaroo by Edward Lear. Said the duck to the kangaroo, good gracious how you hop over the fields and the water too, as if you never would stop. My life is a bore in this nasty pond, and I long to go out in the world beyond. I wish I could hop like you, said the duck to the kangaroo. Please give me a ride on your back, said the duck to the kangaroo. I would sit quite still and say nothing but quack the whole of the long day through. And we'd go to the D and the Jelly Bowlee, over the land and over the sea. Please take me a ride, oh do, said the duck to the kangaroo. Said the kangaroo to the duck, this requires some little reflection. Perhaps on the whole it might bring me luck, and there seems but one objection. Which is, if you let me speak so bold, your feet are unpleasantly wet and cold, and would probably give me the room it is, said the kangaroo. Said the duck, as I sat on the rocks, I have thought over that completely, and I bought four pairs of worsted socks, which fit my webbed feet neatly. And to keep out the cold, I've bought a cloak, and every day a cigar I'll smoke, all to follow my own dear true love of a kangaroo. Said the kangaroo, I'm ready, all in the moonlight pale, but to balance me well, dear duck, sit steady, and quite at the end of my tail. So away they went with a hop and a bound, and they hopped the whole world three times round. And who's so happy, oh who, as the duck and the kangaroo? Money is something that most kids understand to some degree from an early age. Some children earn allowances and save up for a new bike or a game that they'd like. Today, we're on the phone with financial literacy expert Greg Merced. Welcome, Greg. Hey, good to be here. Greg, you are an expert at financial literacy. And one of the things you talk about as you work with kids particularly are some really wonderful practical things that we can do as concerned adults to help our kids engage in financial literacy. Another one of the things that you also talk about are saving and investing. And I think those two issues of financial literacy, I think most of us, we understand about chores and helping our kids, you know, pay for, you know, pay them for chores and using their money well. But those saving and investing can get kind of tricky. So tell us a little bit about those two kinds of skills and how do you think we as concerned adults can help them to engage in these kinds of financial literacy? behaviors? Sure. So that's a great question. And it's, it's super important to parents. Let me talk about my own parent for a second. I called my mom the other day and I said, Hey, mom, what do you think is the average amount of time that somebody watches Netflix every day? And she's like, I don't know. And I, and I said, it's an hour and 32 minutes. And she's like, that's it. Like she was surprised that that was that was you know how little time everyone spends on Netflix, and that blew my mind. And and why I talk about that when it comes to investing is how about having our kids instead of 
being that, you know, person who's watching Netflix all day, why don't we bridge that into a kid who does some work, earns some money, and then buys some Netflix stock? That changes the entire way that a kid looks at that particular company. So one company that just used to be, we turn that on and watch stuff on the TV, now becomes, oh, I own a little piece of that company. And it's so important to get them to start understanding that stuff early in life. And if you can do that, it's, it's a total game changer. No less than an hour ago, my 14-year-old came and said, Dad, Ford at $10.85 or something you know, like that. And I said, so what does that mean? He goes, well, I bought it at 10.15, and then now it's at 10.85, so I'm, I'm excited. And so here we get a kid who wasn't the least bit interested in stock a while ago, now is giving me a report every four or five days. And that's the kind of thing that you can really start to cultivate if they can be literal shareholders. And so that's... That's so important because I think we all learn better when we're we're doing something, right? We're owning something. Um, we have that skin in the game kind of idea. So um, as opposed to just you know learning about some you know market up and down, you actually have that share of Netflix or that share of Ford to make that happen. And and we've made that easy for kids and parents to do. But it's super important to learn how to invest at an early age. And what do you think is going to happen when that kid gets their first real job and has a 401k option that has some mutual funds in it, which is just a bunch of stocks thrown together, right? They're going to get it, and they're going to really participate, and that is going to absolutely change the retirement of that kid. So super important, start early, let them experience it for themselves. I don't think many parents or other concerned adults out there would say, oh, yes, you know, I have a 10-year-old. Let's get him investing. I think that that kind of is out of some people's wheelhouse even to make that kind of connection. So what are some tips that you could give us that might help us to engage our children, particularly with investing at such an early age? So I think that's a really smart observation because I think you're right. I think a lot of people are just like, stock market, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't know anything about it. I'm not really. So therein lies our problem as well, which is we've got parents who are supposed to be kind of uh, responsible for teaching their kids about this, but they don't feel confident themselves. So what do you do? So we've partnered with a company uh, out of California, Stockpile, and they actually have integrated with BusyKid, and they can literally go in and click on different um, companies that you would know. Um, so, for you know, for instance, um, they're all name brand companies, right? So you click on Disney, it pulls up Disney, gives you some basic information, you know, high and low, 52-week high and low, gives you their charting, tells you a little bit about the company. So it's kind of like baby steps to learn about stock. And so I think that's a great opportunity for maybe a parent who's like a novice at it, thinking, uh, I don't really like or get into this stuff, to get into it with their with their kid. 
um, take some baby steps, figure out which company, you know, your family likes, and then once again, go for it. Just, and that's the great thing about fractional shares of stock, right? To buy a share of Amazon right now is almost a thousand dollars. So in the system where you can just buy a fractional share, you can literally buy $40 or $35 of Amazon stock and get all the benefits of learning without putting out a whole ton of money to do it. I think you've blown a lot of minds today and maybe opened up a new pathway, particularly for helping our kids learn some interesting financial literacy skills through investing. But if we're still a little timid and investing isn't quite our bag, what about savings? What are some tips that you can give us that might help our children learn a little bit more about saving their money? Well, savings is tough because interest rates are so low and they have been so low for so long. I think that's a little bit tough. Um, that's why I think it's, it's probably a little bit better to, to start working on kind of some of the investment side of things. But I will say this. If you really are bent on having a kid save money um, and you want them to have that more traditional experience, I think a great way to do it is to say, all right, I'm going to do a match. I'm going to match whatever you put into your savings account. I'm going to match it. So that could be a dollar for dollar match. It could be a 50 cents on the dollar match. It could be whatever you want. And I actually did that with our oldest kid who's now 20. But um, I did that and um, I did a dollar for dollar match. And that was amazing because he grasped onto that. You know, he's no dummy. Once he figured out that whole thing, <laughs> he went right back to the well over and over and over. And by the time he was 18 and left the house, um, he had over $10,000 saved up. And I asked him what he wanted, you know, what do you want for your 18th birthday? And his answer was, I want an IRA. I mean, what kind of nerd wants an IRA for their 18th birthday? But that's what he wanted, and it's because he understood saving. He understood matching and how money can grow if you save it. So whatever you have to do to make that happen, set a level that you're comfortable with and that you can afford, but, but that's a great way to do it as well. Those are such simple and direct tips, and I think some of us don't even consider that. And I, I like that matching idea because, like, my employer matches for my retirement fund and these types of things. So it's a great habit for them to get into for the future. Greg, in that future view, though, what do you think is the thing that we need to help our kids learn long term? What What is maybe one of these basic skills that you think – is one of the most essential things that we need to help our kids grow and develop over the long haul? Well, I think the, the very most important things that they need, uh, and, and we've talked about this a little bit, but establishing a work ethic is just so very important. Uh, I, I've employed people myself. Uh, we hire people. I think there's a growing movement out there that, you know, People learn so much on the job nowadays that their just normal uh, college ex you know, experience isn't giving them. That, that work ethic is so important. Um, I'd almost take work ethic over almost anything uh, when it comes to hiring somebody. So that long view 
Yeah, if you want to get that, you know, those jobs that are most important to to someone or whatever, that skill of work ethic is just so very important. And I think that makes a lot of sense. That foundation is so critical. And I, I can't agree with you more that that work ethic and all of those types of things are really significant to our children's lives. So, Greg, as we as we close up our conversation today, Tell me, when do you think we should start? When When is it time? Is it from birth or is there a little developmental time that we need to look at? When should all of this conversation of investing and saving and, and developing this worth at work ethic, when do you think it should start? Well, not at birth. You got to enjoy them. They just sit around for the first few years. So, you know, <laughs> just enjoy them. But, you know, when they start turning five years old, we need to start just uh, just making it happen uh, when it comes, you know, about that age. Um, and, you know, this really isn't that hard. I think that's kind of what I'd like to leave you with. My parting thought is this is not too big to figure out. Um, we, we can really take some baby steps here as parents um, and, and make a big, huge impact and they're not, and it's not that hard. We just provide opportunities for them to work. We provide opportunities for them to make decisions. And if they mess up, okay, fine, we'll help them. Um, and next time, they're not going to make them. Um, we'd be very transparent in in making um, the you know known to them what our bills are. Give them some reality. Let them know what it costs to heat or cool the house. Let them know what it costs to fix the car what it costs to insure the house, et cetera, et cetera. Once they start getting some view into all that stuff, it's amazing the transformation and the mindset difference that they have. And I, and I think that that's really easy to do. You just have to, you know, be a little cognizant of it and do that once in a while. And, and if you can do that at an early age, you're going to raise a kid that's, mindful of this stuff. I mean, we, we send them to school every day, and and I know this because I did it personally, and, you know, we're, we're having them study, you know, French, and they're never going to use that, or at least I didn't. <laughs> um, but we're going to make financial decisions every single day, not only every day, but multiple times in a day. And that's the kind of stuff that we really need to concentrate on, because that's going to get them furthest in life. And I think in the end, that's what we need. We need our children to get furthest in life and make sure that they have all the skills necessary to do that. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your insights with us today. I think we may have a lot more kids investing their money. Let's do it. That's the way to do it. It's a good thing. So I think we will we will see lots more parents looking out into the stock market for ways for their kids to learn some very basic financial literacy skills. Thank you again. Thanks, Rachel. Greg Merced is a financial planner and expert in financial literacy. Next, we'll hear from some fifth grade students from Cherry Hill Elementary School. Let's take a listen. What was the last book that you read? Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows. The last book that I read was Flashback by Shannon Messenger. Probably Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Indian in the Cupboard 
The last book that I read was Wayside School. Um, the second book of Dragon Watch. The last book that I read was a book called Ramona Quimby. Probably Roller Girl. Did you like it? Yeah. What made it good? Um, the imagination in the book. What makes a book good? Mostly the plot, the characters, the personalities, what they're going to do in the book. Like, the characters of, like, what they do in their personality. Um, if it's got lots of adventure in it. Um, illustrations and more details. What makes a book good is if it has a good plot and it doesn't lose you after the first few chapters. Good sentences in the book. It's not, like, really short and choppy. Um, what makes the book good is it has to have details so that you can actually picture what's going on in the book. And it has to have a lot of stuff happening. It can't just be very simple. It has to have a lot going on. Sometimes what makes a good book for me is it has amazing structures in it, or it's about unicorns and fantasy and that stuff. What's your favorite genre to read? I like reading science fiction and fantasy. also read historical fiction. My favorite genre to read is like realistic fiction. So it could happen, but it didn't happen. I like reading books like that. I like reading fantasy, and I like reading comedy. I like reading dramatic, mostly. I like reading all the things that make me feel happy. I like mystery, sci-fi, or something like that. Okay. I like to read those. Fantasy and nonfiction. Fantasy. Probably fantasy. Probably fantasy. Fantasy. What makes fantasy so great? I love unicorn. I just really like everything about it. Um, the make-believe and how none of it's true. What's your favorite subject? My favorite subject is art. My favorite subject is math. Can recess be a subject? <laughs> um, if not, then I'd say math. Math. Reading or science? Do you have a favorite book series? The series Unfortunate Events um, is like really caught my eye, and we're on the last book. And it's just really fun, and like my mom will end at a good part, and like we want to read more, but it's time to go to bed. Some paths in life are planned, some are worked for, and some are just destined to be. When it comes to writing, Often, it's a combination of all three. Today, we're on the phone with author Brianna Shields. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you. Happy to be here. Brianna, you have just published your first novel called Poison's Kiss. It's a wonderful young adult fantasy, and I would recommend it to all the readers out there. Let's talk a little bit as we introduce your novel to them about your journey as an author. I always find it fascinating to see where people started and how they got to where they are. And that just helps us as concerned adults to, to maybe usher some of our children through a similar process. So tell us a little bit. Did, did you write as a child? Was this something that you've been doing for a long time or is this something new for you? I did write as a child from early on as as early as I can remember, I would write little stories and then convince my sister to illustrate them because I had no artistic talent. So we would make these little books together. And then through grade school, I was really kind of a painfully shy child. 
and there were teachers that didn't know the sound of my voice until near the end of the school year when I was finally comfortable. But um, writing assignments were one of the areas where I always felt secure and felt like I could do a good job and had several teachers along the way give me encouragement about writing and pull me aside and tell me how much they loved my writing. And so it was just something that always, um, I always felt most myself when I was writing. That is beautiful. And I love that you say that you have teachers that supported you and helped you to to become the writer that you are today. When you moved through your schooling, was this the plan? Was this something that you did? What kind of training and stuff did you take advantage of as you, you grew up to help you become the writer that you are today? So um, I always loved writing, but it wasn't until high school when I joined the newspaper staff that I realized you could do this for a job. Um, I had a really great teacher in high school named Stephen Beck, and he was my honors English teacher and the newspaper advisor for three years of my high school. And he was a really great teacher, great at encouraging me and great at teaching me kind of the mechanics of writing and, and helping me be a better writer, but then also just uh, giving me that insight that there could be a career that, that would allow me to write full-time. And so that was really instrumental for me. And then in college, I fell in love with creative writing and knew that I wanted to be a novelist. I'm glad you fell in love with creative writing in college and became a novelist because you've produced, you, you produced such a wonderful book. But what has influenced you? What were those influences either as a creative writer or as a reader that you think helped you to see what you could do someday? What, what influences have you had? So I read really widely as a child. The library was kind of far away and... And so I just read anything I could get my hands on, from Anne of Green Gables and the Babysitter's Club books to Mary Higgins Clark Mysteries and even Stephen King at one point. And I think all of those, I think when we write, we're always in conversation with everything we've read before. And so those books early on, even though they weren't a direct influence in my writing, I think kind of sneak in there in certain ways. I learned from Anne Shirley that there can be characters that really stick with you and that really connect on a deep level. Um, And then, you know, my mystery phase I went through in high school with Mary Higgins Clark, I think every book in some way is a mystery. And and so that just taught me how to kind of create a page turner that, that draws the reader through the book. So I think between teachers and reading on my own, um, all of those are really important influences. That's such a great important point there that influences because I think most authors that I've talked to in my life say, you know, the the best tip that they give is if you want to be a writer, be a reader too. And it, it's really interesting to me how much those two connect and how sometimes we don't often, we don't often consider <laughs> those types of things. So are you reading actively today? What What is the stuff that you, you have on your to-read shelf? Yes, I read um, I read as much as I write, if not more. Right now I'm reading Lainey Taylor's Strange the Dreamer, which I'm only about 20% through, but is really beautiful so far. You're going to love it. It's a gorgeous book. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. love her writing. She's yeah. Just, um, yeah, she makes me green with envy when I read. It's just beautiful. Such lyrical, beautiful writing and, and yes. beautiful characters. Yeah, so you're going to love that book. It's a, it's yeah, a great I, one. <laughs> I can't wait. It's wonderful. And then I read um, I read historical fiction, um, I try to read widely. I think there's just no other way to get storytelling into your DNA as, as effectively as reading. I think it teaches you things subconsciously 
about storytelling and about how a novel is put together that you just can't get any other way. And so I think it's really important to read read often and read widely if you want to be a writer. I could not agree more. I think that that's so true. In, in this whole storytelling process, what do you think is the most challenging part, particularly for you as a writer? What what parts of the of the process do you think you find to be the most difficult? So for me, the most difficult thing is is accepting imperfection. Um, there's always the idea of the story in your head that you can never quite capture in words on the page. And I think it was Bonnie Friedman who said, to write a book, you have to take the, the sort of glittering perfect idea of the book and sacrifice it on the altar and accept the imperfection that it's actually going to be. She said it more eloquently than that. But I think that's true, that that sometimes that can hold us back when we feel like we're not doing it well enough, when the story in our head just isn't quite translating as beautifully on the page as we'd like. And so I, that's something I constantly have to struggle with, perfectionism and, and just letting go of that and, and telling the best story that I'm capable of telling. Particularly as you move through a publishing process, I think that could be really challenging because I think in some ways you have to put something out there that is imperfect. So, you know, I'm going to ask you to bear your soul. Is there something that you feel like in your book, in Poison's Kiss, that you don't feel is quite perfect yet? <laughs> I'm asking a tough question, I know. <laughs> yes, I think, I think I could endlessly change it and tweak it for years and years without being satisfied, probably. Um, yeah, I wish I could go back and, and add a little more depth to the character development. I wish, yes, I wish in a thousand ways it could be more perfect, but nothing's ever perfect and always inspires me to hear other authors whose work I do think is perfect say the same thing, that that they wish they could go back and change things. So I think that's normal, but it's it's never fun to never what could have been. Never fun to put it out there and say, oh, it could have been more perfect. Well, but I think that might be interesting, too, particularly in this case um, with a sequel, that you might be able to explore some of those imperfections. I, you know, you can't change things, per se, but you could explore some of those imperfections and and maybe perfect them in a way. So is, is that the way you're going to approach the writing of your sequel? Yes. And the, I just finished copy edits and sent those in so the sequel's done and it was very satisfying to be able to go and and develop things more in depth that I wish I'd gotten to in the first book and so I hope readers will like it I really I really love the sequel so well that's exciting we're looking forward to that particularly as this being your first book what kind of response have you got from readers so that's been one of the most satisfying things is getting letters from readers telling me they loved it or telling me they finished it in one setting or one sitting, not setting, that they that they read it all in one go and that re- they really connected with it. So that's been really, really satisfying for me. I love that kind of feedback that we, we get from people because I think not only does it help us know that we've put something out there that, that people are enjoying, but I think also helps us improve as writers. So it, was there something that somebody said about the book, uh, one of your readers said about the book, that kind of surprised you? Or, or you thought, oh, I didn't think of that in that way, or, or gave you some new insight in, into your writing? Yeah, so one of the things that has been really, that's made me really happy is seeing readers respond to the sibling relationship, because that was something that I really connected to in the book, but the publisher was very much playing up the romance part of it. And so... It's been really, it's made me really happy to see the readers connecting to the sibling relationship. 
a lot, and that's, that's made me really excited. And then, yes, it's always surprising to see readers take away something that you didn't intend or take away some, or interpret things in different ways when one reader thinks that it was a fast read and one reader thinks it was a slow read. And everybody's just unique, and I think we're always writing the conversation, and the writer's only half of that. And so it's very interesting to hear the other, the other half of the conversation and hear how readers are receiving it and responding to it. That particular insight is so true to me that this really is a conversation and what the writer creates and what the reader creates can often be two separate and very distinct things, but then it becomes this wonderful conversation between the two. And and I think that's great, especially for children and teens to to enter into that conversation with authors and and to be able to to talk to them. So how it how do you reach out to your, your fans and your readers? What what kind of avenues do you use to make those kind of conversation connections? So Twitter is a really great place where I, I find fans will often feel comfortable approaching authors. And so sometimes they'll, they'll tweet me a picture of, of reading it or ask me a question, and, and it's very easy to respond to them quickly and, and have that conversation. And then I've also gotten emails, and I try to respond to as much as I, as I can. Some, and then I've had even readers ask me for some advice on publishing and writing. And so I try when I can to respond to those things. It's, it's uh, nice to be able to give back. That's such a great perspective. Well, as we close up our conversation today, your sequel is is re- getting ready and moving forward. So what comes next? What what should we expect next from you? So I'm working on a fantasy set in a totally different world that I'm really excited about. Um, I can't say very much about it yet, but it's about oh, a quarter of the way done. And so I'm in that really happy drafting phase where everything feels possible and I'm writing every day and really happy. So... That's good to hear. Well, we are looking for a great many wonderful things to come from you, Brianna. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Brianna Shields is the author of the book Poison's Kiss. Now I'm going to step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Today I'm talking with Janice Bunker, Janet Bradford, and Myrna Layton about music education. We're in studio today with three of my very favorite people on the planet, my favorite music librarians. I'd like to chat a little bit today with you about music in schools and why is it so important? I know that um, music has often been sidelined, particularly now as, as part of a school. And I know that we all learned music in schools and found that a very key part of our education and a key part of our classical music education, right? I, I learned most of my classical music background from all of that. So talk a little bit to me, um, let's talk a little bit about why that's important. Why do you think that's important? Why is that learning music in that key part of the schools is something significant to to you? Yeah. Well, I feel like because studies have shown that learning music develops your brain, it actually makes a student more able to learn music. other topics like math, for example, because there's a relationship between, I mean, musical music is mathematical. So it, it develops your brain. There's so much emphasis on STEM, and, and music enables the child's brain to, to better cope with those kinds of, of topics. And 
when we take music out of the schools and we we put it on the responsibility on the parents to provide extracurricular musical activities for their children, then um, money becomes mm-hmm. a problem. And it, it's just a way of taking that opportunity to learn, that opportunity to develop the brain away from children whose parents um, can't afford private or lessons. Or aren't able. Or, yeah. 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 Or just, you know, it, yeah. it just takes that away and, and makes... A, a bigger gap. barrier or gap between yeah. the haves and the have-nots. I feel like it's so important that children at least have a minimal exposure to music in the classroom because it can help to level the playing field, give yeah. them that opportunity. Yeah. That that is so important. I do, I do see that. You know, when we take it out, particularly of our schools, we we increase that gap between the haves and the have-nots, and those particularly those kids that could use it the most, those in poverty or those who are struggling with learning disabilities or anything like that, they're the ones that don't get it then, right? So, yeah, yeah that I really appreciate that. That's a, one of those amazing things we need to remember, that it makes it so it's not accessible to everybody, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is difficult and not happy for so many people. I feel like another way that, music in the schools is beneficial is because it requires the kids to work together. And I know my husband's a school teacher, so we know that the big, I mean, schools have changed a lot, but there's now there's more of an emphasis on working to group projects and whatever, but it's a different feeling when you're in a choir with 65 other kids and you're all having to do something at the same time and your concentration is on listening to each other or coming in at the right time or matching pitch with someone, you're all working toward the goal together. And I think that provides a bonding experience that can really help people be friends. Um, because then you're like, oh, I know him. He's from my choir class. He's not weird, you know. It it's, I think it's really important in schools to have something like that. Instrumental music is the same. Although, it, you know, singing tends to be easier for people because they're more familiar with it. Learning an instrument is sometimes more difficult. But we have so many talented people who are learning how to teach music in the schools and how to help kids feel positive. Really, when you're learning an instrument, it's very easy to feel positive about yourself because you can make cool sounds. <laughs> and it's there's so much out there you can do with just learning to play the piano. Yeah. It can really benefit others and benefit yourself. And I think having that element in our education system can really help alleviate some of the divisiveness that's going on in society today. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love, too, about being in choral and orchestral groups was just that it introduced me to a lot of different music, and particularly classical music, I think, is very much performed in schools. And I think that that brings a cultural heritage and stuff. What, what do you think about that, Jana? Does, is that helped you kind of build that heritage of cult, classical music in your life? Yes. Even though I was raised in a very small community and didn't have a lot of really... 
a lot of exposure. The first time I went to a real concert with the symphony orchestra is when I went to college. I had had, you know, I'd listened to him on LPs, I'd listened to him on other means. But I think every bit of information you can get and understand this is Bach. He was during the Baroque era, and it connects you to other dots of what else was happening in the Baroque time. And to me, music in schools is as, as important as having a recess at school because it's a it's a type of activity that builds, as Myrna was saying, your brain, as Janice is saying, your social interaction and helping you have self-confidence that I am learning how to do this thing. And meanwhile, you're just, your context of life and how you fit in the universe and how, you know, it's, it's just such an, it's a great way to learn about history. It's a great way to understand the world. Yeah. I know when I talk to my English teachers a lot, they, they say, oh, we have to read the classics in school because it gives them cultural context to understand the world around them. And I would have that same contention. We need to be in music and choir classes to have that cultural context to understand the world around us. I mean, so many of the things, um, so many of the things that happen in our world and the you know, there's so many parts of that that are music. I mean, we even, you know, think of some classic, some classic musical phrases that are in commercials or other types of things that are so much an integral part of what we do. And school music, either, you know, music appreciation or just engaging with music or learning classic folk songs or in a choir, that gives us that same kind of thing as a literature class would, in my estimation. So as we conclude, Myrna, Janet, any, any last thoughts you want to add? Music is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. Myrna? I was just going to say that we are human, and and the human emotions and the feelings that we get um, that find expression in music are part of the human experience. And we can't deny that. It's so important. So thank you, ladies. I'd like to thank Janice, Janet, and Myrna for talking to me today about music education. We've had a really great show. First, we talked with Randy Evanson about how we teach using storytelling. After that, we were on the phone with financial planner Greg Merced, talking about helping our children learn to save and invest money. Our last guest was author Brianna Shields, and we discussed her journey to becoming a writer. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.